Hey there, Zach Naylor here, co-founder and CEO at Aurelius and your host for the podcast. Our next episode is with Natalie Hansen. Natalie is a UX professional and trained anthropologist. She currently leads two distinct UX teams, one in-house and one client-facing at the company ZS. She has also ran AnthroDesign since 2002. Natalie has a ton of experience in doing user research and design with both external clients and internal teams at in-house roles. You can just tell by the way she discusses design and research that she's seen a lot and had success in our industry. We continued a long-running theme of our podcast with Natalie, where we discussed the importance of UX and research folks understanding business better to be more effective in their role. Natalie shared some tips specifically on how to learn about how business works and then how to collaborate with business stakeholders and executives more successfully. Natalie and I had a conversation pretty focused around user research and specifically how to collaborate with others in doing that work. This includes executives, developers, QA, and others. We had a chat about the best way to involve other people in user research work and how to best share those findings and communicate the value of research insights to the work they do. Our discussion with Natalie on those topics got me excited, particularly with some new features we released in our very own user research platform, Aurelius. You can now share any and all of your user research findings and data right from Aurelius using our new collections feature, and they don't even need an Aurelius account to view them. We've had a few customers already tell us how huge that's been to quickly answer the question from a stakeholder, what do we know about or do we have any research on, fill in the blank. Aurelius is a user research and insights platform to help you organize, search, and share all that customer research and feedback in one place. We've had a lot of very cool new features recently launched, and we extended our free trial to 30 days. If you're interested, head over to our website and check it out for yourself, www.aureliuslab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. Okay, here's our episode with Natalie Hansen. Welcome to Aurelius Podcast, episode 36 with Natalie Hansen. She's a UX professional and trained anthropologist who leads two distinct UX teams at ZS. One is an inside team with the company and another, which is an outside consultant team. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Zach. Happy to be here. Definitely. So as we typically do in beginning each episode, uh, for those folks who may not be familiar with you and your work, maybe tell us a little bit about the things that you're doing you know, recently and, and some things that, uh, that you're sort of thinking about that are on your mind. Sure. So I have, I have long-running interest in interdisciplinary collaboration, and so that's the thread that runs throughout my career for the past 15 years, and I hope we get to talk a little bit more about that. But the, the sort of instantiated in this group that I lead called AnthroDesign, which is a, a, an online community, both a listserv and a Slack for people that work with, with ethnographic methods. And um, that's caused me to think a lot about how do we make interdisciplinary collaboration better, is something I've been thinking about, and I just recently wrote a paper about um, that was published last year in the Journal of Business Anthropology. So that's sort of a long, sort of an underlying theme in my work uh, over the past years. But I think there's a lot of super practical things that many of us have contended with in UX in the recent years, you know, how to deliver UX effectively in the agile environment, for example, on the on the product side of the team that I lead. And then on the consulting side, it's always the question of value. You know, how do you articulate the value and the impact of the work that you're doing to, to your clients? And so always thinking about how do we help explain what UX is? How do we help explain why it's worth investing in? And so those those kinds of conversations about value, impact, and measurement are are the things that really I focus on on the consulting side of the business. Sure, that makes sense. You know, I'm curious, Natalie, though, with mm-hmm. with you mentioning that, do you find that this is also still true that teams are, in, you know, in-house teams are struggling with that, communicating the value and sort of, quote unquote, selling, you know, UX and research? Absolutely. And, and um, it's, so, you know, prior to ZS, I was, um, I was at, a, at SAP, which is a giant software company. And um, I, and I went through a similar sort of evolution of having an internal team that grew to be more and more strategic over time. And I think the difference in being an innie is that you have the same sort of well, 
some similar set of stakeholders over many years. And so you that trust and that respect and that appreciation for what UX does is something that you can build on over time incrementally. <clears throat> and so, you know, I tell stories, for example, of, you know, times in the early days of, of internal work where uh, you're asked to just help reskin a website, right? Or help apply brand colors to a website or help with a little bit of light content editing or, um, you know, some content analysis. And for clients, we would do that. And then they would say, hey, you know, could you help us maybe do some interviews or validate that that's the right stuff on the website or do some usability testing. And then eventually we built enough trust and respect with that client that we could do ethnographic research. And then, you know, in year three or four of that relationship, they said, Hey, you know, we know, you know more about our team over time than we do. Will you come to our strategic planning meeting and share what you know and help inform our strategic plan for the next year or two? And so for me, there's, there's a continuity that comes with internal work that allows you to sort of build that trust and credibility and respect over time. And I think with clients, it can be just harder because you're working with, you know, you're within annual budget constraints and, and so on that maybe make it a little bit harder to, um, to get in the door for that consistent, ex- to, for repeated experiences over time that allow you to establish that credibility. Right. So some, you know, there are firms that are successful. They, you know, I think of Red Associates as a great example. People know that what they do is ethnographic research. And so people go to Red for, for that purpose. That's great. But a lot of us, you know, that's not necessarily how our clients come to us. They want something simple. And we build into those more complex, more high investment projects over time. Yeah, for sure. That's, you know, I've, I've made that argument as well for a while when I spent some time in the services world, you know, as a consultant, that uh, mm-hmm. that those those projects are rarer because you need to find somebody who's willing to trust you up front. And uh, I mean, by right. all, by all account, there's no reason why they should to be to be completely like blunt <laughs> right. about right. it, right? Like they're hiring you to do a job, you don't know anything about their company, and that's it's it's irrespective of the fact that you're probably very good at learning quickly about their company. Uh, right. It's it's a huge barrier to entry for sure, and that's. And I think a lot of that really comes back to them trusting you to do research that will inform their decision making. I mean, it's uh, that's that's tough, right, to hand off that trust with somebody you don't know that well and haven't built the relationship with. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for in a lot of cases, you know, this may be a career defining moment for them and they want to they want to put that in the hands of somebody that they know and they've had that experience with. One of the things I would say that's maybe different about ZS in our case, one of the things I like being a UX team sort of embedded in a big professional services firm is um, we we have very, very long-standing relationships with clients. So many of the many, we work in healthcare, we work a lot with pharmaceutical manufacturing, for example, but with medical device companies and so on as well. And with those clients, um, they, some of them have been clients for 20 or 30 years. And so while I might not personally have that long history we as a firm have established a lot of trust and credibility and that enables me to, to get in the door and with more trust and a, a stronger starting point than I would if I was starting truly starting from scratch with that client relationship. For sure. For sure. That makes sense. Um, you know, this, uh, this tangentially brings up something I, I did want to ask you about, which is just this idea of using research as a means for collaboration. And I know that this is something that mm-hmm. you're passionate about, right? You've written about and, and you've s- certainly shared thoughts about. Um, mm-hmm. d- let me just ask you, uh, I'll try to be very lawyer-like. Do you believe user research <laughs> you know, helps people collaborate around problem-solving, decision-making, et cetera? Yeah. Well, I personally do because I'm an anthropologist and I'm in this field, right? So I'm super you know, I'm passionate about research as a way to solve complex problems and to create alignment around challenging issues that we might be trying to solve for a client or a product, you know, a market, an area of the market. I think where I feel as a, as a discipline, we get into trouble with UX is that not everybody necessarily feels the same way about that. Mm-hmm. And so we, we know that, hey, if you really got a chance to sit and watch this user flail around with the software that you designed badly, that should evoke some kind of empathetic response that encourages you to make it better. But I think there's a, there's a lot of assumptions in there and there's a lot of our own passion that sort of masks the reality 
that we don't read it. The thing that I, I'm noticing more and more in the things that I'm reading about collaboration is that we as UX professionals actually aren't particularly empathetic towards our own teammates. You know, people chose the field of engineering maybe because, you know, if they're passionate about writing code or writing super clean code or, you know, that those topics are things that they're really impassioned about they may not really have any interest in people or human behavior. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I know that sounds funny because you think, okay, software's for people, but that's not what the passion is in engineering. And so I think one of the mistakes I think we make is assuming that everyone wants to understand users and user behavior and that it would naturally evoke empathy in people that participate. And, um, and then the last thing, and I think the, the sort of the final sort of fallacy and all that is, if an engineer watches the same thing that an anthropologist or a psychologist or a, or a design researcher or a designer watches, that they're going to see the same things in that research session that we see as trained ethnographers or trained researchers. And um, I think that's just such a huge mistake. And one of the things I've talked about elsewhere is this idea of the ladder of inference, which is, you know, you can you can look it up. It's it's um, very easy to find, and I can give you a link to some things to read about it. But the idea with the ladder of inference is that when we say things, we immediately start to make meaning about those things. And if our history is different, if our racial and economic background is different, if our academic training is different, if our lived experience is different, which it always is, we will inevitably come to different conclusions about seeing when we see the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I talk about is this idea that we have to step up the ladder of inference together as a team if you want to bring the engineers along and if the engineers are interested. And so, for example, one of the stories I like to tell one of my mentors, Giddy Jordan, who is an anthropologist and worked for many years at Xerox Park. And one of the things that they did at Xerox and their interdisciplinary teams is they would watch the video together from some interviews or some kind of session that they had done and that they would actually do the analysis together as opposed to just saying, hey, let's walk, watch the video. But they would pause it and say, here's what I see. What do you see? And even just in that one sort of moment of video, they might see something or it might make them think about something related to the code or the stack or something like that that an anthropologist doesn't see. And so even just sitting together to watch a video or a usability testing session, I think it's a mistake to assume that everyone's going to come to the same conclusion when they watch it. And this is when I say like the act of sort of, you know, we so focused in UX on creating empathy for users. And and I know that that whole term has just been so co-opted and overused, but I think we really need to look at the lens within our team. And even though we're exasperated sometimes that an engineer might not understand or might care, not care about human behavior is to, to recognize that, that that's, that's okay. That's part of what makes the team strong is that, you know, you're, no one's expecting you to write code. Right. And mm-hmm. so if they're not expecting you to write code or QC their code, you know, just be realistic about how far into your space you want to expect them to come. Right. That's so there's that's great. There's a lot I want to unpack there, but uh, some, something I didn't expect to comment on that I want to do so quickly, though, is that when you talk about uh, having a team of people who who have different socioeconomic backgrounds and lived experiences, you know, just as a quick note, which I think is important to pull out, that's why it's important to have a diverse team. Uh, period. Absolutely. Right. So like that's I, I just want to lay that out because that wasn't a, that wasn't a place I expected us to go. But, uh, you know, we yeah. often talk about that. And I think it's uh, I think it's an important and relevant topic recently. Certainly. Yeah, I mean, interdisciplinarity is ultimately about diversity, too. Right. And, you know, when I think sometimes, <clears throat> hey, why why does UX bring a unique perspective into a particular problem? And sometimes I wonder if it really doesn't have to do with the discipline of UX at all. But the fact that we're in a sea of engineers, at least in our case, we are, and I've always been my whole career. And you're in a sea of engineers, but you're coming as an anthropologist or you're coming as someone with a degree in human factors. And just your worldview is different because of your training. And it, it might not necessarily have to do with that your education itself, but just you're a different kind of person than someone that went through an engineering program, right? And that diversity alone brings a different kind of rigor and novelty and problem solving to to the opportunity that you're working on. Right. I think that's absolutely true. So with that, the other thing I wanted to mention is sort of based on what you were talking about is it's also very near and dear to me, in fact, because I've been giving a talk 
uh, pretty central around this this topic actually of you know uh, you're assuming that the things that are important to you are important to other people and and, <laughs> yeah. and, in, and in your particular case you're talking about it very inwardly focused right which is to say mm-hmm. you're assuming other people care about our customers in the way that we do and and I agree yeah. with you it seems weird to suggest that's not true but guess what in fact the majority of the time is it's it's true that very thing is true absolutely and I think it's myopic to assume that everybody else uh has the same you know set of values and priorities that we do because that's that's not true in life so why would it be true in business right yeah and I think this is one of those places where um you know, you may have read, um, Leah Bewley wrote a really interesting article when she, when she left Forrester about sort of the lack of, and, and many people have talked about this before and since, but that, that article I thought was super compelling. She wrote on Medium and basically talking about this um, idea that, you know, UX people aren't going to be effective until we understand the business world. And it's, you know, not necessarily about going to get an MBA or understanding finance or whatever it is, but, you know, if you want to, if you want to evoke some kind of response in an executive, you're trying to get them to change their product direction or their go-to-market strategy or their experience strategy or whatever it is, you have to understand what drives them. And that means understanding how they measure the success of their business. Um, and it doesn't, like I said, doesn't mean you have to have an MBA, but that's a different, that's also a form of empathy, right? Is to say, hey, what what kind of experience can I give to this executive that's going to um, help them think about their business in a radically different way. Right. And it's not just pulling on heartstrings or getting the kind of insights that you need in order to drive change from a design point of view. It's really about evoking the kind of experience that's going to help them think about changing their business. And, um, and that, that's something that has to be crafted and, and thought through and not just sort of assuming that if someone sits in a usability testing session, they're going to have a transformative experience about how to change their business model. No question. I could not agree any more strongly with everything you just said. Um, in fact, <laughs> in fact, so many of our guests have said something very similar around this topic. It's mm. almost become a central theme that underlies a lot of the conversations we have here on the show. Uh, and I, and I think it's a good thing because, uh, because I agree with you that it's something that as an industry, all of us need to get better at. So this, this was right. a thing for a long time where, you know, why doesn't design have a seat at the table? And it's like, that's like throwing a tantrum, right? That's just like saying, well, we should totally. be included because <laughs> because we believe we should be included. Right. Well, that doesn't exactly. that doesn't speak at all to the benefit to others of including right. us. And it's the same thing with yeah. design as an applied practice or re- or research. Right. So I, I consider them all in the same right. when I say that. Um, mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. And so this so we talk a lot about research, and you and I ha- have, and I expect we will. And this is actually a place where I have felt very strongly research helps. And and let me clarify what I mean. If you can do a pretty good job at understanding your business, your stakeholders, the people you work with, then you can help them understand what questions they don't have answers to. Mm -hmm. Now, you see where I'm going with this, right? It's because then we can show directly how our expertise as researchers helps them get answers to questions they want to answer so that they have confidence in making actual business decisions. Now, all of a sudden, what you've done is you've linked everything up, right? You've said, well, this is exactly how design and research helps you, benefits you, not just because it's great for customers, which it is, but that's your job. That's not their job. Their job is to make it great for the business. And you've now helped them directly link that up to, to how design and research benefits that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me again, coming back to Red, I had I did an interview with um, Christian Modsberg, who's one of the co-founders of Red Associates. This was a couple of years ago. He had a book that came out called The Moment of Clarity, which I just found super compelling and really, really enjoyed it. And one of the things that he said that really struck me is that when they do their research, they are obviously doing the research in market, ethnographic research on, of all kinds. You know, they've been behind the transformation of Lego and um, they've worked with Adidas and so many, so many companies, like really, really amazing case studies that they have to share. But one of the things that, that Christian said that really struck me in that interview was he said, they put a lot of energy, almost as much energy into understanding the internal discourse of the corporation that they're trying to serve as mm-hmm. they do looking at the market. Because that internal discourse, how the company understands themselves, what the barriers might be to change, 
that that lens is as critical for the success of the project as the understanding of the market itself. And I think that's just such a great point. And I, I don't think we do that particularly well, right? We don't necessarily think of our clients' business as the site of inquiry. We're enabling them to understand their market, but not not necessarily expressing as much curiosity about their their business and how their business operates and and what might prevent change from being successful as maybe we should. Absolutely. Again, I think it's I think it's nearsighted to assume that people mm-hmm. want to care about research insights. Just <laughs> just because we know that that's compelling for the work that right. we do that that does not translate directly across other right. parts of your organization, right? Right. So then the next question has to become, Natalie, how do we do that? <laughs> how do we do that well? How do we collaborate around those things so that you know, we can get other people to care about that? You know, I think this is, this is maybe not the, I don't want to say it's not an appealing answer, but it's not necessarily what people want to hear is that it's, it's honestly, it's just super hard work, right? There, you can't just say, hey, let's invite. Um, let's invite our um, engineers to usability testing and then it will all be better, mm-hmm. right? It's, you know, it's what I described is you have to invite them to usability testing. You have to understand maybe what they care about learning or why they're even showing up if they're showing up. And, um, and then taking the time to really step through and develop shared meaning from that usability testing instead of assuming that miraculously they're going to hear the angels singing and they're going to have a UX perspective by sitting in one usability testing session. Right. Um, I think it's just, you know, it, it really is just the hard work and the investment of time. And I think there are people, other people that are, have talked about this too. Um, you know, at the design ops summit, for example, Holly, I'm drawing a blank on her last name now. Holly but Cole. Just talked about like invest. Yes, exactly. Investing the, um, the time in, in understanding your own internal team and their challenges and, and, and what friction that they're experiencing. And because, you know, I do hear, you know, there is, there's, there is, you know, designers just frustrated about working with engineers and how hard it is to work with engineers and engineers are stubborn or they're not interested in people. And, and I think what I worry about is, and, and one of the things I really watch in my team is that sort of us against them mentality is ultimately just going to create burnout. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so then the question is, you know, how do you treat it as a solve? It's not an intractable problem. It's it's a it's a lens. It's a problem with a lens that people have. Like you're not going to make engineers. I mean, somebody has to write the code, right? And and we and we love that they do that. And the design's useless if it doesn't make it the code, right? So we right. need that part of the team. So how do we respect that and respect that their experiences and their interests are different? Because I think if we push against that and expect every engineer to care, what just happens is burnout instead and then so i think it's really important to then that's really i would say if i have to think about sort of my sort of philosophy as a leader and and what drives me to think about these things that's it right it's really really hard to find good ux people it's hard to keep them in such a highly competitive market and and so it's important that they be happy and energized and inspired by what they do and um and and so just you know what what how do we create the conditions to avoid burnout basically? And this, so this is, you know, part of what, part of what brought me back to this topic. That makes sense for sure. And, um, you know, I'm curious if we're talking about using research as a way to collaborate around the problem we're all trying to solve collectively. So that's design, mm-hmm. engineering, business, you know, marketing, whoever else, um, you know, what recommendations do you have? Like, are there any, are there any hacks or even just just tips you can share on maybe how you do that today, even at ZS. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing for sure is, um, I you know we we do hire deep experts. We work on very very complicated business problems. We we work with data science with these really large complex data sets with um, all kinds of regulatory restrictions, and so the design work we do is intellectually very complicated, and. Um, um, and so we, we people do have to be deeply expert if it's an information architect or a, or a designer or even a you know visual designer or UX designer. But one of the things I want is always people who are interested um, in the intersectionality with other fields. So for example, I I want researchers that are interested in seeing things through to design, that are interested in being involved in making sure the IA is right, so the usability is right. 
And I want designers that want to be part of research to some degree. Maybe they don't want to be researchers per se, but they, they recognize the importance and the value of research and they want to be a, they want to be a part of those kinds of activities. And it may, and it may seem obvious, but I think um, that is one of the things we, we interview for. People that just want to do design or just want to do research, like we have to get the collaboration right within our own teams, right? Because even research and design is, yes, there are people that do both, but that is interdisciplinary work as well. And people have to be willing to do it and curious about it and, and have some overlap, right? And we have designers that are more interested in understanding a little bit about front-end code so that they can make our design standards fantastic, right? That's great too. But any kind of, like, I, want, I just want people that are curious, right? Not just about users, but about doing better work together. Um, and that's, so that's a big part of what we look for. And I think how we get the kind of team spirit that we want as we tackle these, these problems together. Yeah. So you got to get the right people first, right? Before you can talk about changing specifically how you work and how you solve those problems. It's the composition of the team and sort of the attitude of the team is, is first. Definitely. It's a mindset, right? I've, uh, mm-hmm. I've often and, and frequently talked to people. <laughs> I, you know, this is my very blunt way of saying it is I like to work with people who give a shit. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's just, it just comes down to being that simple, right? Like if you, if you're in a field and it doesn't matter if you're an engineer or designer, it doesn't matter. But if you're in the field, because you're just like, I love research and I want to make this beautiful and intricate research plan that, that checks all the boxes is completely bulletproof and delivers all the stuff, but you don't actually care about the impact that has somewhere else or why it may or may not matter to somebody else. Yeah. Then it doesn't, how great your work is actually is inconsequential right. at that point. Yeah. There's a great, I'll have, I can dig it out for you. I won't, I won't be able to put my fingers on it fast enough here, but I think the center second enterprise UX conference that Lou Rosenfeld ran and I have, I'll have to go and dig for it, but there was a, it was called the sliding scale of giving a fuck. And, yeah. and it was, um, it's a guy, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's great. And I actually had used that with my team to say, look, you know, like someone will just be, just be, you know, someone who cares about design standards, just freaking out that the devs don't want to pay attention to the last micropixel or whatever isn't correct. And then I just said, you know, where are you going to put your energy, right? Are you going to put your energy into, is it more important to have a really good longstanding relationship with that developer? Or is it more important that that one pixel is right? And, and then really making sure that you're investing your time and your energy into those, into the right problems. Um, and because, because, you know, again, coming back to this idea of burnout and I've called it elsewhere, just talking about this idea from, from sociology of emotional labor, right? We care so much, like viscerally care about users and, and, or, um, or patients or, you know, the consumers that we're serving with our solutions and it, and it does lead to burnout and you just, you have to step back and you say, which of these things do I really, what's the hill I want to die on? Right. Yes. And you can't, you can't be every single one. It can't be every single right. pixel. It can't be every single way that, I, you know, like I'll have executives that we do this like elaborate sort of in context research and then they go talk to their stakeholders and they call it focus groups. And I'm like, Oh God, please don't do that. Right. But it's right. like, he's ex- that, that executive is super excited that they've done research and that they found interesting things. And is he calling it the wrong thing? And is that horrifying to me? Absolutely. But <laughs> we still have an executive talking about the value research, right? So mm-hmm. you have to step back and say, am I really going to correct that guy or am I going to let him run with it? And I'm going to let him run with it, you know? Right, yeah, and, and I've made the same argument in the past is like, uh, well, and actually in that talk that I referenced that I've been giving, um, uh-huh. I use a reference from the one, uh, the the most recent Indiana Jones movie, which is, it's questionable on how on the quality of that one. Uh, but there's a, <laughs> there's a scene in there. So anybody who knows Indiana Jones knows that he's very, he has a, he has a phobia of snakes, right? And so right, he's in this quicksand right. pit and he's, he's getting rescued <clears throat> and they can't find anything in the jungle. So they throw this very long snake for him to grab onto to get yeah. out of the quicksand. Uh, <laughs> and, and, they, and they keep telling Funny. him, grab the snake, grab the snake, grab the snake. And he gets mad and he says, stop calling it that. And they say, well, what do you, what should we call it? He says, he said, say, grab the rope. That's what they do. And he grabs on, and they pull him out. It's like, <laughs> right. It's funny. Uh, but the thing is, it's the same thing in, in, in the world that we live in is there's just these like mental yeah. hangups that people have. Yeah. Now, are you going to, are you going to yeah. die on the hill of saying, no, 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 no. Those are not uh, focus groups. Or are you just going to go right. great job with that focus group? Let's go and do another <laughs> collaborative interview session. Like give it a different name, <laughs> right? If they're afraid of snakes, yeah. don't call it a snake. 
and I don't know if it's just maybe I've been in this field so long now, but I do feel like we are so enamored of how we, of our processes, of our artifacts, of how we do the, like we're a little precious about our own stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think this is an interesting conversation I was having. We're evaluating changing our prototyping tools. So the set of tools, the combination of tools, we have, again, some interesting challenges because we work on product on one side where we need really sophisticated prototyping with all the behavioral specifications sort of displayed for the devs. And then we have a lot of quick and dirty stuff we do on the consulting side and we're learning we need, you know, mul- multiple kinds of tools. And um, and so w- when you're, I think what happens is, and I'm experiencing now, span of control of, you know, 100 people just the kind of details that you're in have to change. And I do get impatient for people get stuck in there. And I, and so I'm starting to emphasize more and more with those executives that I go talk to, like, can you get to the point faster? Um, like what details really matter? And, um, and I think, you know, it would really, it would help, you know, I almost feel like UX people should find a way to shadow and shadow executives just as a learning opportunity. And just understand the way that those conversations happen, how snap decisions are made, what kind of data is needed, um, you know, the advice to focus on the conversation, not on the slides, um, uh, you know, that kind of executive perspective. I, I hope more and more UX people will find a way to have that because I think it could accelerate the kind of impact that we deliver to, to, to our target users or patients or customers or whatever yeah. by understanding that better. Yeah. Definitely. I was looking at one of the questions you asked me, how do we get people to collaborate and act on it? Sort of just thinking about, you know, how do you do that? Because there is even just in the way that you phrase that, there's just a little bit of forcefulness to it. You know, how do we get people to collaborate? <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, and I, and I, it's a fair question. And I, again, some of it, you know, within our team where we have control over sort of the temperament of the people we hire, that's, that's an expectation. Um, and then, you know, you have choosing where not to collaborate. Uh, for me, you know, as much as I think engineers do need to have some understanding. And by the way, some people that go into front end development, I had a full stack developer um, that we that I worked with, and he made the switch to be a front end developer because he actually wanted to be closer to the business logic and the business. And he felt working on the front end would you know, and he had an MBA also, so an engineering degree and an MBA. And, um, and so for him, that was something he really wanted and he was interested in, uh, but, but not everyone is. I actually think for me, um, e- much easier thing once you've built the right rapport with clients is to get clients to, to work with you. So we, for example, if we're doing a big research project, we'll ask the client to ha- pick a, a junior person. So we, want the, we want the insights to be sticky with the client long after we're not there anymore. And, and, you know, there's something that happens when you do the analysis that, um, that you internalize the findings in a way you never can if you just get a research report, right? You have these verbatims in your head and you, you sort of understand the patterns in the data. And so we typically, we really push to get the clients to assign a junior person from their team to participate in the analysis with us. And it's amazing how much more sticky and, and and so then the client will start talking, oh, this is what the research report said. And that junior person will pipe up in a meeting and say, here's a direct quote, you know, and they're able to just sort of really talk in an impassioned way. And they represent, because they've done the analysis with us and we've all arrived at the same conclusions, they're just able to carry that, those insights forward back into the business in a way that we could never do because eventually we, you know, we step out of the project. And so for me, you know, it's not to say that that internal team collaboration isn't important. It is super important to have a high functioning team, but don't want to forget that, you know, you if ultimately what you want is to do research that drives action and change. Um, getting your customers to collaborate, I think, is is also incredibly important. Right. And, and even a little bit more tactical in that regard, you know, what do you do there? Getting them to collaborate, right? Because again, it's making the assumption yeah. that, that they care. Yeah, yeah, and so knows. maybe it starts. So I'll give there. you a specific example. So we've done, we did a series, we were doing some research with salespeople, which is a, is a uh, user base that we work with a lot at ZS. We do a lot of work with in sales. That's sort of what we're known for is, is um, sales and marketing, deep domain and sales and marketing, whether it's analytical frameworks or domain knowledge about healthcare and how the healthcare ecosystem is evolving and what that might mean for a sales or marketing strategy, for example. And then more recently, working more and more in the clinical trial space, bringing those same kinds of 
operational efficiency and technology and domain into into the full spectrum of life cycle of, of pharmaceutical products. Uh, but so sales is sales is the is an area where we spend a lot of time. So we were doing some, a project where we were uh, it, it was a combination over multi phase project where we did concept testing, um, revised designs, usability testing, interviews, some in context research like this. It was just a mass of data, and um, in phases. And so we we did things like we created a hypothetical journey map based on stakeholder feedback. And then we would do, we actually went to talk to the real people whose journey was re- represented and brought stakeholders with us and said, what's wrong with this journey or what's not in this journey? And we iterated the journey and the stakeholders got to observe all the things that they didn't deeply know or understand about the journey that the real users were able to describe. Um, you know, affinity analysis. So you would do, you know, collect all this interview data and organize it into themes and read the transcripts, cut the transcripts apart, like the heavy, you know, like the high touch, high effort, true analysis effort. Um, and, you know, putting things on big poster boards and looking for themes and those junior people from the client team do that with us. And then they, they're all energized and jazzed about the deliverables. We've had clients take those boards, you know, with all the quotes and stuff on them and bring them back to their office and use them as and display them in their offices and say, this is what the field really needs, right? So they're just, they so deeply advocate for those users after being a part of that process. Um, I think for me, one of that whole idea of stakeholder-led design versus true um, user-informed design, that juxtaposition, doing that, clients believe that that's stakeholder design is enough or they want to start with that. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we indulge them, you know, we'll say, okay, let's, let's, let's draw what you know, and we'll start with that. And then we say, and then just please give us access to just three to five people that this, whose, whose journey this is, and we can, we'll validate it that way. And inevitably it blows the whole conversation wide open about how little they actually knew. Yeah. Um, and we have just these great visuals that show here's the process talking to stakeholders here's the process after talking to users and we're just able to show now um and once people have been through that they become believers yeah so almost uh almost using the the like reverse psychology like yeah sure we'll 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 do it your way and then we'll just make sure that it's right and then oh well the that's not right so we should change that yeah and then they just Mm -hmm. eventually agree because of course they want it to be right and uh it doesn't really matter where the idea started from, right? Um, so, yeah, long, exactly. so, so long as we eventually get to the right idea, the one that's best for the mm-hmm. business and the customer. Yeah, and I think I think um, some of it also is in the language we use, right? So we might say, "Hey, we should do some kind of usability testing or some kind of, you know, some of the language we can use that makes clients overwhelmed." If we say, "Look, let's just validate this with three to five users, you know, per segment or or whatever it is." Somehow that's less threatening than, you know, let's do another whole wave of gigantic, complex, expensive workshops, right? right? It accomplishes the same thing, right? It's eye-opening, but it's the language we use that makes that more accessible. And, and, and we're not, what we're not trying to do is we're not trying to say you don't know, um, right? We're saying you know, but, you know, let's, let's also talk to the users too, right? So not invalidating their own experience or perspective because that's just going to create animosity or... Um, or, or people are going to get their backs up, right? Yeah, absolutely. If they're afraid of snakes, call it a rope. <laughs> That's a great one. I, I can totally, I haven't seen that movie, but I, I will visualize that one forever. I'm definitely going to have to go back and watch it now. Yeah. But it's just, it's just one of those things again, where if usability testing or user research puts uh, right. the heckles up of somebody you're talking to, then don't call it that. Just say, yeah, we're right. just going to make sure that you have the confidence that we're making the right decision. Does that sound good? If somebody says yeah. no to that, I mean, then you have a completely different conversation to figure out, right? Yeah. But generally yeah, exactly. speaking, generally, yeah. How much do they really care? Why are they investing? Are they just trying to check a box, or do they do they really care? Right. Which, think, interestingly you know, you had, enough, had, I was just going to say, interestingly enough, if that's the case, then guess what? Maybe you actually don't need research. Maybe you shouldn't actually right. waste those time and resources or cycles doing that. It's rarer, yeah. but like at least you at least you get to an honest place, right? And we're just really careful when we do that kind of work that we label it. We make really, really clear 
this is a journey map, but it's not informed. Like we, we will go that extra mile to just make it really clear that it's not, it's not user informed because what happens is people see a journey, they assume it's grounded in some user insights. And if it's not, we don't want, want it misrepresented. Um, so we do, you know, there's some ethical things there too. And you're ultimately you're protecting your client, right? If you, Mm -hmm. you don't want them representing something as a journey, if it's stakeholder, stakeholder defined journey. Right. Absolutely. You know, I think one of I was looking at the other questions you had you had asked and made sure we covered them all, Zach. And one of the things you said is, you know, how do we collaborate around research to make it more actionable? And I think this is where this idea of thinking about who needs to take action, right? Mm. An executive needs to take one kind of action, an engineer needs to take a different kind of action, a product manager a different one. And so, just thinking that you can have a one size fits all deliverable, for example, I think is a mistake. And so, we'll have you know the executive version of the deck. We'll have the um, you know in one that we created with the product manager that determines next steps from a roadmap perspective of working on a product, and with the engineer making sure that we're pulling it through to say okay, like for example, just because you present a usability testing report and say this is what worked and what didn't work for the users, an engineer doesn't automatically know what it means they need to do differently. And so there's a you know we create a separate deliverable that that says here's what the here's what the usability testing findings specifically need for engineering next steps. Mm-hmm. And not assuming that, because then there's this huge interpretive gap there, right? If, we, if we're not specific. And so, um, you know, the, the, like I said, that does, it, it is extra effort to do that kind of collaboration, but then you'll, you're more likely to get the outcomes you want. That's, yeah, that's awesome. And I wonder, can you, can you speak to any more detail on like the differences between some of those deliverable. So you mentioned the one for uh, development, for instance. Okay, yeah. here's a finding. Here's what this means to you. I mean, I love that idea. Yeah. Can you talk to that anymore? Sure. So, you know, when you do a research report, typically it's organized around themes, right? That what's, what makes a good research report is people, the themes and sort of the ideas behind the research are sticky. Um, but the developers are thinking about components of code and screens. And, um, and so we, we actually literally go screen by screen. We'll actually go screen by screen and, and document. Here's what needs to change. Here's what needs to change. Here's what needs to change. Instead of assuming that, you know, because for example, uh, maybe you're using one element on a on a screen. Um, and there is, you know, there's there's software that does this now, right? It's not just it's like I think about something like Zeppelin, right? That we're starting to use internally, and um, you know, it just takes your, um, you know, whatever specifications you've documented, and it it just flips it on its axis. So it's organized around the things that the devs care about instead of what you care about, right? The devs don't care about the business themes or the user themes. They care, okay, how many times does that search box appear? Where does it appear? So we make sure we change it everywhere, right? Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, where was that color used? If that color doesn't work, please tell me all the you know, places where that color was used so that I ca- we catch everything, you know? And... Um, um, and just, you know, going that extra mile to make sure you pull it all the way through is, is important. I think um, another area where we, um, um, you know, we've had some really good success is, is all the way through to QA. And so I think, you know, we often feel, oh, you know, we're sandwiched between engineering and product management. There's the business and product management on one side, engineering, and we're sort of stuck in the middle. And we feel like we don't know enough about the business and we're not involved enough in engineering. And we sort of feel like we're the you know, the ugly stepchild or whatever, the monkey in the middle. And um, and I, what, what I've learned in having those conversations with QA is they feel the same way. They're like product decisions, roadmap decisions are made, designs are made, research insights are developed, code gets engineered, and then QA is sort of the last mile, but they haven't been included in any of the stuff up front. And the amount of goodwill that's established by just, uh, you know, we've done some things like, first of all, inviting QA people to hear findings because otherwise they don't even know what use cases they should be testing for, right? So if they go Mm -hmm. to usability testing, we have a list of tasks. Now it becomes evident what should be tested from a QA perspective in terms of the core capability of the solution. Um, And then the other thing is, is even with design systems, uh, and and again, maybe this is obvious, but say, hey, here's all the things that are covered with the design system. You don't need to QA these anymore because the search box is a piece of code that's been QA'd once and never needs to be QA'd again. Here's the parts of the design that aren't in the design standards yet that you should be focusing on when you do your manual testing. Yeah. Right. And I mean, it's just, you say it and it seems so obvious, but they, they're, they're 
each one of those team starters feel like they're left out somehow. Engineering left out of the business conversations. You know, QA feels like they're left out of some, you know, and so I think just looking around at, at what does it take to get the product out the door and who are all the people that touch it and are people really included? Because then all of them are, they, they also can all evangelize on behalf of, of what's best for the user. Right, you know? right. Or, and- what, or what the pixel perfect outcome would look like, right? Are they going to advocate for your pixel perfect design if they've never seen it before? Probably not. Right. Yeah. And I think, yeah, something you said there, I'm kind of reading between the lines and pulling this out, but we got onto this because we were talking about how research enables teams to collaborate around, right? And -hmm. the reality of it is, is when you bring them together and you bring them together around a central idea that is, you know, supported by something you learn from customers of this this shared agreement of the problem we're solving that's backed up by what you actually learned from research then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden the conversations you have are not well this is what we want or need from qa and this is what we want or need from it's all what are we doing in the best interest of this thing we're all rallied around which just so happens to have been informed by the very work we did in research Yep. Yeah, I read a great article. You know, you, you've probably heard that expression, you know, uh, dysfunctional teams create dysfunctional products. And I went and did some digging around about where that came from because it was so compelling to me. And it, it turns out it's Harvard Business Review uh, article. And one of the sort of one of the, the things that I found really, really interesting in that article is they said that people do align at the beginning of projects, but then they sort of gradually drift apart as micro decisions get made. And that one of the things that prevents that from happening is visual artifacts, you know, whether it's your Kanban board or a wireframe or a sitemap or whatever it is. And I just think that's the business we're in, right? So we can, I think, you know, sort of the rallying cry for me is we can play a critical role in keeping teams moving in the right direction and building the right thing because we're the team that can create those artifacts that sort of ensure that we remain aligned as, as the project goes forward, whether it's some kind of abstract conceptual piece, you know, even we've done things like visualized solution architecture as a way to help teams get aligned, right? Not just to say UX artifacts, but project team artifacts that are super visual kind of are sticky and help help drive and make that alignment. It becomes a reference point over time. Let's pull that out again. Is this decision in line with what we agreed when we draw the solution architecture diagram, right? And so for me, that just seems like such a great opportunity for us to be the glue um, in in sort of making those that vision that we establish as a team become reality. Yeah, that's great. Say, Natalie, I'm looking at the time and I realize we're coming up towards the end of our conversation, of which I am quite sure we could spend several more hours discussing this with you. Yeah, it's been fun. Absolutely fun. Definitely. But I want to be respectful of your time. Um, So, you know, to that end, I would ask you, is there is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience today that we haven't already covered in our conversation? I don't, you know, I don't think so. We've talked around a lot of different topics. I think a lot of these things I've been writing about on my blog. Um, I mentioned um, I wrote an article for the Journal of Business Anthropology about interdisciplinary collaboration. Um, there is a on my blog. There is a post called Origins of Anthro Design. Um, so I had mentioned answer design at the beginning of our, of our discussion. Um, and I've, I wrote it about a year ago, but it marked the 15 year anniversary of anthro design. So it was around the time I was sort of finishing my PhD and thinking about what my next career steps would look like. Um, I started that group and to reflect on the fact 15 years strong, it's still vibrant, still generates a lot of really great discussion. I still learn something new there all the time. And so I think if you want to know more about my thinking on those topics, that more recent JBA article and then the, that Origins of Answer Design article would be great places to start. Um, and then I think it's, it's um, I think my main, the main thing that I'm, that I'm trying to impart to, to UX professionals is, is that empathy with, with, with the disciplines that you work with every day that that's really going to get those outcomes, ultimately get the outcomes we want, not just the empathy for the users, patients, or consumers that we're designing for, but empathy within the team actually is going to drive better outcomes too. And, and um, you know, if you really find like you're banging your head against the wall and dealing with an engineer or a product manager or whatever it is, to just really step back and say, you know, how is their worldview different than mine? Why is it different than mine? And rather than risk burning yourself out 
or banging your head against the wall is to just say, how do I step back? And, you know, as a fantastic research opportunity, how do I reframe the problem, right? Yeah. And really go after this in a different way and just admonish people, really encourage people to, um, to do that. And um, to say that maybe what's, what's in that unhappiness is a learning opportunity. And I think in the end, we'll, like I said, we'll do better work. And we'll probably be happier at work too. Yes. If you're, if you're feeling frustrated. Yes, that's great. Yeah. Um, there's also the, um, sorry, just the ethnographic practice and industry, which is an, a conference that's focused on ethnographic methods and uh, across interdisciplinary teams, which I think is a great event. And it's nice because it's, it's a big conference, but it's not huge. It's single track. And so there's just really an opportunity to get to, to know other people. Um, so that would be another place, you know, if you're really interested in, especially in those types of methods and interdisciplinary teams doing that kind of work, that's a great place to great, great event. The next one's in, I think in the fall in, in Rhode Island. Awesome. We'll make sure we include uh, links to those things in the show notes. Uh, part of great. what you just said too is uh, reminded me that I need to ask you the question I typically do of all of our guests, which is if I came down with temporary amnesia and I forgot everything that we talked about <laughs> and there was one point that you wanted to make sure that everybody got from the conversation that we had today, what do you think that would be? I would say for me, it's that we deliver the best possible outcomes when we take the treat the relationship within our teams as seriously as we treat the relationships with the clients, patients, consumers we're attempting to serve. Excellent. I love it. And I strongly agree with that. <laughs> All right. Well, Zach, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Definitely. Uh, Natalie Hansen, uh, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on the show. And, uh, and I hope everybody got something out of this. I know I certainly did. And, uh, we'll have links to all the things that she referenced in our show notes. You can check those out. And, uh, Natalie, again, thank you. My pleasure. All right, everybody. We will see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a rating on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to our podcast. And also you can fill out our podcast survey where you can let us know if someone awesome that we should have on the show and even tell us about the things you would want to hear about topics that are interesting for you. You can check that out in the show notes or on our website. Thanks for listening to the Aurelius podcast, the show where we talk with brilliant minds about user research, UX design, and building great products that meet the needs of real people and what you learned about them. Aurelius is a user research and insights tool for design and product teams. Aurelius helps you add, tag, organize, search, and share all of your user research notes and customer feedback insights to figure out what you learned faster and easier than ever before so you can make awesome designs, products, and features. Check us out for a free trial at AureliusLab.com. That is A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. Or find us on Twitter at AureliusLab. We'll see you next time.